0: Our second reading this morning is from Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. Might sound a little familiar. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, look, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged, so he sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed that there was a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and throw him out into utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. This is the word of the Lord. But sometimes the word is difficult to understand. You would think that a royal wedding invite would cause unbridled joy and excitement. Yet no one in this parable wants to go. And I think it's fair to ask, why not? After all, there is not a single thing that would have kept me from Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's wedding. And I know you too. But not only are these invited guests busy, they will kill the postman before they will will attend. And then you've got our king, and boy, is he disgruntled. I mean, he will burn your whole town down, and then he will force whoever is left, good or bad, to come to that wedding, and not only will you come, but you better wash those ashes off of your face or else weeping and gnashing of teeth for you. And to be honest, can I be honest? I'm angry at Matthew for writing this funhouse mirror version of the parable that I love so much in Luke, Dr. Barbara Brown Taylor, writer and minister, when writing about Matthew's penchant for hellfire and brimstone, wrote that if Matthew and Luke had churches in my town, I would definitely go to Luke's. (laughs) Me too. Earlier this week, I entertained bailing on this second parable. Forget Matthew. We could all just get together and cuddle up with Luke's version, and we could all feel cozy again. But... I don't think that's the point. I think that parables are meant to make us just a little uncomfortable. And I believe that there is something here in both Gospels to teach and reorient us. In Matthew, Jesus is in the temple, and he's talking to a group of Pharisees who have just been railing against him with these big, scary questions. And they're trying to trip him up so that they can arrest this annoying heretic who's making all of them look really bad. Matthew says just before this wedding parable that the Pharisees have finally realized that Jesus is actually talking about them. And they are not happy. There are many different commentaries on these verses, all of which I've read. And some are fascinating and have very different understandings of what this parable means for us today. In one, they say that Jesus is actually the undressed guest in the parable. In another, they say that the king represents political systems of the time. And in one more, we are the servants who have been called out into the streets to invite everybody to the wedding. But overwhelmingly, most frame this as an allegory instead of a parable. And that's how it was taught to me. The king is God. Jesus is the groom. The busy and murderous guests, they're the Jews. The wedding feast is the kingdom of heaven. The rejected and or murdered slaves are the Old Testament prophets. The A-listers who have refused to attend the wedding are God's chosen people, the Israelites. The kicked out guest represents those horrible Pharisees. But the B-listers, those last minute guests who get to come in off the street for a big old royal party, That's us, the Gentiles. And how convenient is that understanding of this scripture for us then? I mean, we get to show up to the party. Those who are on the outs, they're dead. They're out gnashing their teeth together. But we are eating caviar and drinking wine while the world literally burns down around us. (laughs) The commentators who understand this parable the way they've they've done is they give us a cast of characters and they they got it all figured out. And so then their warning to us becomes, don't you get this king mad or you know where you're going to end up. It's right there in the text. It is clear as day. But is it? Jesus is asked 183 questions across the gospels. But he rarely gives a direct answer. I wish he did more. But instead, he likes to ask us these questions, 307 of them to be correct. And many of those questions he presented in parables. Some parables, they make us feel all warm and cozy. And others, they make us a little crazy. Jewish historian Amy Jill Levine says that what makes parables mysterious or difficult is that they challenge us to look into the hidden aspects of our own values, our own lives. And they bring to the surface all of these unasked questions that we have. They reveal the answers that we've always known, but are maybe a little afraid to acknowledge. And so our job this morning is to get inside this parable and walk around in it get a little uncomfortable because we have the same job that those Pharisees had all those years ago. We get a little mad or confused in hopes that we will wake up and that Jesus can teach us something about how we live our lives. I am uncomfortable with Matthew's version of this parable because I do not like the commonly assigned cast of characters. The temper tantrum throwing king does not look like God to me. And if Jesus is the groom in this story, then where on earth is he? Why doesn't he step in? Where is the mercy in this story, the justice, the grace? If this is a parable about heaven, then we really don't get to come in because we're wearing the wrong clothes? Is the focus of salvation really about what we do and what we get right instead of a response to the grace of Jesus Christ? I love the challenge that Episcopal minister Debbie Thomas offers. I wonder if Jesus tells the parable from Matthew in such an extreme and offensive way, precisely, bless you, because... We do believe in a God that is as harsh as the king who turns armies loose on his own people. And so then we need the help of hyperbole in order to recognize it. What if the king in this parable isn't meant to represent God at all? What if the king is what we've projected onto God? What if the king embodies everything that we have learned to associate with divine power and authority from watching other all-too-human kings and rulers, kings like Herod, conquerors like the Roman Empire of Jesus' day, leaders like Hitler or Putin who enact violence, demand obedience and perfection before they ever offer justice or love? What if this vengeful king, represents our very worst fears of who God is. That at the doors of heaven, a wrathful, angry God is waiting for us. If we follow that fear, what does that say about us? I think we are terrified that we are actually the thrown out guest in this parable. The king calls the undressed wedding guest friend but some versions it is translated to imposter. We are afraid that we are an imposter in the kingdom of heaven. Our greatest fear is that we don't have a seat at the table at all. We are wearing the wrong clothes. Our invite is rescinded. God's grace has limits. We're not invited because we're not worthy. And that fear, that feeling of unworthiness, I know you know it, But my question for this morning is, can a life lived in that type of fear and a faith lived in that type of fear produce the love of Christ, the joy of salvation? Fear and anxiety cannot be our response to the love of God. If this story is told in hyperbole, to show the Pharisees about what the kingdom of God does not look like, then Luke's parable perhaps shows just what the kingdom of God is. Franciscan priest Richard Rohr writes, before the parable of the wedding feast in Luke 14, 12, Jesus says that when you give a lunch or a dinner, you don't ask your friends, brothers, relations, or rich neighbors for fear that they might repay you, because then you'd be back into the meritocracy game they might invite you in return out of courtesy. Jesus is telling his followers, get out of the worthiness game entirely. When you throw a party, you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, so that they cannot pay you back. Because this will mean that you recognize how fortunate you are. In the Gospels, the banquet is a wonderful symbol of God's free and unconditional love, but we seem to prefer the worthiness system where we can earn every single thing that we get. But that is not God's invitation to us. As we're told in Ephesians, for grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, lest any man should boast. It's a Wonderful Life is my favorite movie. If you've never seen it, I'm really sorry, but you have had 76 years to do so. Um, But if you want to see it, I'll guarantee that you can just plan to come to our house this Christmas Eve at about 10 p.m. The lights will be low, Eric and I will have hot cocoa waiting, and you can help us wrap the remaining presents while we all sob under the twinkly lights of the Christmas tree. The movie begins with the story of Mary and George Bailey. Love and joy is what they build their entire life on. They continuously make life choices that are centered around sacrifice, love, and caring for all of the people that God has put into their life. They live on very little, but they give so much. They especially give to those who would be considered the least of these And none of that makes sense to the movie's villain and the self-proclaimed king of Bedford Falls, Mr. Potter. (laughs) In life, George is blessed with a beautiful family, but then George is also tested. By the end of the movie, it's Christmas Eve, And George Bailey's love and joy have been replaced with fear and anxiety. He is in the middle of his largest life crisis. His uncle has lost an $8,000 bank deposit that would have protected their savings and loan business from bankruptcy and fraud charges. The government is knocking at his door, looking for answers, ready to arrest him. And George, he is brought to his knees. He does the unthinkable, and he has to go to ask his absolute nemesis, Mr. Potter, for a loan. Mr. Potter, by the way, has actually stolen that large bank deposit, but he has no grace for George. Instead, he tells him that he should go out, and he should ask all of those people that he helped to save him now, implying that in life, He's helped the wrong type of people because, of course, they're all poor, so they're unable to pay him back. Mr. Potter tells George he's got the wrong clothes on, and he would be worth more dead than alive. So he throws him out of his office, and George then experiences his own version of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He ends up at a bridge and is about to take his own life when God steps in, and he sends a second-class angel with no wings, Clarence, to show him the way. But instead of giving George an easy answer, or, you know, just giving him the money to fix everything, Clarence has him walk around in a parable for a little while. He shows George what the world would be like if he had never been born at all. George experiences a fun house, inverse and terrifying experience of his life. The people who he had helped, to, to helped out during his life, they are all bitter and destitute. Why? He wasn't there to help them. His brother is dead because George wasn't there at age nine to grab him from below the ice. The woman who he loved is a bitter old maid. The children who he cherished don't exist. And Mr. Potter's reign is clear through the whole town. There is no joy. No love, no justice, and it's clear by how lost everyone that George loved is. Instead of a party, it's like the city is burning down around him. And of course, this terrifies George, but it also wakes him up to the beautiful gift of his life. He begs God to take him back to reality, and when he does, he has had a wake-up call that has reoriented his entire life I really wanted to find a perfect comparison to the wedding feast, to what I think the kingdom of God would look like. And I have to tell you, I really dream that it's like the home that George Bailey returns to. After wrapping his children and his wife in his arms, the doors open and the guests just start filling in. They are all of the people who George has ever helped. The poor, the lame, the people that Mr. Potter thought could never repay him. And guess what? They have drained their bank accounts. They have canceled their Christmas plans. They've called in huge favors. And they shower him with all the love and joy he has invested his whole life. The house is full. His debt is paid. The movie ends with Hark the Herald Angels Sing and "Old Lang Syne. And I love to think that just after the movie credits start, everybody settles in for a big old meal together. Can you imagine that feeling of belonging, of worth, of family? Henry Nowen wrote that the house of love is the house of Christ, the place where we can think, speak, and act in the way of God, not in the way of a fear-filled world. From this house, the voice of love, keep callings out. Do not be afraid. Come and follow me. Go out and preach the good news. The kingdom of God is close at hand. I've heard it said that we have one foot in the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And so we get to see these little glimpses of it here and there. Unfortunately, more often than not, I think we experience that scary funhouse version of it. And so it's very easy, earthside, to mistake kings for God, to mistake our brothers and sisters as our enemies, to believe ourselves without an invitation. But that is not the gospel of Christ. That is not the kingdom of God. I don't have a pretty bow to wrap up on these parables. I don't have a cast of characters that I can give you with certainty But what I do know is that just 23 verses after Matthew's parable, Jesus does clearly give us an answer to one giant question that I know we all have. Teacher, what is the most important law of Moses? And Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. If we allow parables' meanings to be cemented, aren't we missing the entire point of what a parable is meant to do? To get us uncomfortable, so that we ask bigger questions, walk around in the parable for ourselves, so that they can become challenging and inspiring for our lives today instead of stagnant. I think the difference between Luke and Matthew's telling points point to a very interesting truth. We all bring our biases, hopes and fears, our struggles and our whole selves to the gospel. And what is powerful about scripture is that when we wrestle and look deeper, we uncover our deepest held values, how we understand who God is. Anne Lamott says, most parables are paradoxical in that they do not go the way that you think they should. Jesus is messing with people's minds. Paradoxically, he does this out of love so that they will dig deeper into truth where they may find themselves and love, which is the kingdom of God. Wake up, my friends. We have good news. The kingdom of God is near. We are on the guest list. The music is ready for dancing, the food is ready, the table is open. Let us reach out to every margin, fill the house with the love that we can never repay, and then let's take our seats. Amen.